Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. One bullet had already torn through Layla Bush's abdomen when the gunman came back around. Her co-worker heard him coming and decided to run. Layla couldn't. The bullet hit her vertebrae. Her legs were useless. Just play dead, the co-worker suggested before bolting from the room. Layla was in too much shock, and besides, she wanted to see what was happening around her. So instead, she just stayed put and tried to staunch the bleeding. She was sitting alone, defenseless, when the gunman returned. And then he turned around and saw me, and I'm laying on the ground, leaning up against a bookshelf, and he looked me in the eyes. And it's a weird moment of intimacy where your life is in someone else's hands and they're looking at you and you realize they see you and they still pull the trigger. Layla Bush was one of six women shot July 28, 2006 at the Jewish Federation in Seattle, Washington. One of her coworkers died. The shooting made international headlines in part because that type of thing was rarer back then. We had about two dozen mass shootings in the U.S. in 2006. Ten years later, there were 173, according to the Gun Violence Archive at ShootingTracker.com. But this isn't a story about mass shootings in America. This is Layla's story. The story of a 23-year-old Seattle transplant who was working her first real full-time job when a bullet changed everything. From the Cincinnati Enquirer and The Trace... This is Aftermath, a podcast about gunshot survivors. I'm Amber Hunt. Layla Bush calls herself a geek. She was always a geek, she says. In high school, she was a math geek. As an adult, she became a gaming geek. These days, you're most likely to find her hanging out at her husband's Linwood shop, where customers gather to play board games. A three obstructed to Nam, and a three unobstructed to... Layla's a regular fixture at the Around the Table game pub, where you can order beer and warm cookies while playing Stratego or Gauntlet of Fools. I think she said it, but that's, that's these days that's how you compete with Amazon. Yeah, you know, what a you, good idea, though. Yeah. So anyway, that's me just that's, praising your business That's model. our thing, you know, getting people away from their computers. <laughs> that was Tim Morgan, who cones the shop with Layla's husband and is one of her best friends. Layla fits right in here among role-playing and magic games. At first glance, you'd never know she has a horrific story to tell. But then something might catch your eye, like it did when she first sat down to talk with us. Okay, so thank you for doing this. What is on your leg? This is a uh, stability brace. Uh, Basically, it goes into my shoe, kind of in an L shape. And so because of the shooting, uh, one of the bullets went in my side and kind of was a hollow point bullet. So it went through everything. One of the fragments ended up shattering one of my vertebrae. It's not the kind of story Layla expected she would be telling about her life at age 35. She had always been ambitious, in a hurry to grow up. 
ask her about her childhood, and she launches into a geography lesson by default. Her parents met in Iceland. She was born in England. The young family lived a few years in Turkey. This nomadic lifestyle was thanks to her father. My dad worked on the big radars that protected us from the Russians if they were to, like, nuke us or something, like the first alert system. And it had its drawbacks. Not everywhere they lived was safe for Americans. Turkey stands out. Layla remembers always being aware of that threat, so much so that their home had a security guard and the family had a plan in place in case things ever got tricky. One time, her mother awoke screaming that there was a car bomber outside. The family scrambled and was nearly out the door before they realized her mother had just been dreaming. The false alarm at least served a purpose. It proved that our plan was not well practiced. Despite this bit of drama, Layla says living in Turkey was an amazing experience on the whole. She even lived above an arcade. I didn't speak any Turkish, but I'd go down there every day and I'd play arcade games. And eventually the guy who worked there would just let me play games all day and help me beat them. And, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. And there was a man who would fish out front and he taught me how to fish. And, you know, you don't have to share language to share those experiences. When she was 10, the family of three moved back home to the States, where they lived in northern Florida. Layla grew up building forts in the woods. She loved school and was an excellent student. Um, I was in a lot of advanced classes. Um, My friends and I were all math geeks, and we went to math competitions. She took so many college courses as a teenager that she earned her associate's degree alongside her high school diploma. College came next. Thanks to a Florida program that rewarded good grades, she earned her bachelor's degree for free at Florida State University. She seemed to be in a hurry. I think that I just was ambitious. I had big dreams and big plans for myself. I mean, I didn't have like a particular like thing I wanted to be when I grew up, but I knew I needed to go to college and I wanted to get started in life and get get my college degree. And I guess I was just in a hurry to kind of start my life. She figures her drive came from her parents. Both parents were focused and dedicated. Back in the States, her dad got a new job as a communications and technician officer on ships, so he would be gone on a boat for four months at a time. Her mother, essentially a single mom for huge swaths of the year, went back to school to become a nurse. I helped her study all of the, like, different bones in the body and... Mom started working nights, and Layla largely took care of herself. I got to see a lot of that work ethic and hard work, and it became a real value for me, something that I wanted to be able to do. I wanted to work hard and, you know, be successful so that I could support myself and take care of myself and, you know, have money to give to my parents so they could, you know, do their adventures as they got older and retired. And, um, you know, that was kind of my, my ambition Next, she met a guy, and the two of them decided they'd start their next adventure together. That's how she ended up in Seattle. She found a job through a temp agency that she loved, and they loved her, so it became a permanent thing. Her first real post-collegiate job was as a receptionist for a nonprofit called the Jewish Federation. Layla wasn't Jewish, but she loved learning about the religion. It was really interesting, though, because they would have different, I don't know exactly the correct word for them, but I'm used to Bible studies, and they would have, like, Torah studies, and so I would get to go to some of those. Mass shootings weren't as commonplace as they are today, 
But it was by no means more peaceful in 2006. 9-11 had been five years earlier. The U.S. was embroiled in two related wars. American Jews like Daniel Pearl and Nick Berg had been beheaded in high-profile videotaped assassinations by militants overseas. This worried Layla's boyfriend. The guy I was dating at the time, Clay, said something about, you're going to get hurt working there. And I was just like, whatever, you're silly. I mean, they have like a security door. It's fine. What could ever happen? Just as when Layla was a child, there was also a safety plan in place. She and her co-workers met regularly to discuss it. This was prompted in part by the homeless shelter next door to the building. Layla, as the receptionist, regularly had to turn away men looking for a place to sleep or other types of help. It wasn't a huge deal, but it did get unnerving when someone would leave unattended bags in the lobby. Mostly, Layla's job was organizing the supply closet and trying to find answers for questions that made no sense to her as a non-Jewish person. And I'm like, oh, let me put you on hold, and I'd have to run back in the office and find someone who is Jewish. But being the receptionist also meant she was the gatekeeper, the one who buzzed people in and out. It was her job to keep out the bad guys. Guys like Naveed Hawk. Today, on July 28, 2006, at approximately 4.03 p.m. at 2031 3rd Ave, the Jewish Federation of Greater Seattle, which is located in the city of Seattle, county of King, state of Washington, suspect Naveed Hack. He was a man of Pakistani descent, angry with the war in Iraq and U.S. military cooperation with Israel. He decided to target what he assumed was a workplace full of Jews. It doesn't seem he knew much about Judaism, though. He showed up at the Jewish Federation on a Friday afternoon, by which time most of the practicing Jews had left to prepare for Sabbath. Those still there largely were employees, like Leila, people who worked at a Jewish organization but weren't themselves Jewish. Leila wasn't supposed to be at work that day. She had asked for it off to go camping, but then the forecast predicted rain in Seattle, so shocking, right? Layla rescheduled the camping trip at the last minute for the next weekend. But it ended up being a beautiful day. The sun was coming in the windows. Everyone was leaving early because it was a beautiful Friday. And a lot of, you know, for the people who are Jewish, it's the Sabbath. And so a lot of people would leave early to go prepare for that. So there weren't very many people left in the office that day. Layla was doing busy work, faxing a form for someone on staff. One of her co-workers, Cheryl Stumbo, gave her a heads up that her niece would soon arrive, a 14-year-old girl named Kelsey, whom Layla had met before. Layla was told to buzz in Kelsey when she got there. Layla was at the fax machine when Kelsey arrived, so she didn't see her on the security monitor at her desk, but she heard her voice over a speaker. I think she just said, you know, I'm, I'm, this is Kelsey, I'm here to get to my aunt. It turned out Kelsey wasn't alone. Hawk, a 30-year-old man, had been hiding behind a potted plant in the charity's foyer when Kelsey walked in. As then-Seattle Police Chief Gil Kurlikowski would explain to reporters, At that time, he took her as a hostage, held the gun to her head, and forced her to take him inside. She could not have kept him out. She was a hostage at gunpoint. Layla was expecting Kelsey, so when she heard her voice, she buzzed her in without a thought. Then she noticed that Kelsey made a beeline for the restroom. 
Thankfully, she was a smart cookie and she came right up the stairs and went and locked herself in the bathroom and called 911. Now here's the moment Layla has replayed in her brain a million times. Hot came in, gun drawn. Layla's security training was to pick up the phone and call for one of two rabbis that didn't actually exist. But the use of these fictitious names was supposed to alert her co-workers to an intruder and give them instructions. If Layla called for Rabbi Black, it meant everyone should flee out a back door. Rabbi White directed them to the front door. Layla had always hated this plan, and she had said so in staff meetings. I said, that's a really bad plan. I'm not going to pick up the phone if someone has a gun in my face. I, I'm just so here she stood with a gun in her face, and it turns out she didn't pick up the phone. But it wasn't the conscious choice she thought it would be. The only thought that keep, kept going through my mind was this must be some kind of practice because we'd just been in our safety committee meeting talking about what we were going to do if someone came in with a gun. I was like, oh, this, is, this, is, this must be a practice scenario. Like, I feel like this is a training scenario, but then I was like, no, this is, this is real. This is a real person with a gun in my face. Once that realization hit, her training still didn't kick in. You know, we all have those uh, fight, flight, freeze responses in those types of situations. And I definitely froze in that moment. All I could think about was, all right, well, he wants money, but we don't have any money here, you know. I couldn't think of any other reason why he'd be there. And so I just put up my hands, and he was ranting about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and how angry he was at Israel and the Jews and America for these wars, and he wanted to stop them. And then he asked to speak to my manager. So I just kind of slinked along the wall with my hands up and went to one of my manager's offices, uh, Cheryl. She was peeking out of her office because I guess she heard his angry voice from her office. And I told her there's an angry man with a gun. He is upset about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and he wants to speak to my manager. And at that point he had followed me around the corner and followed us into my manager's office. My manager went to pull me in. She told one of the other employees, Carol, to call 911. And Carol picked up the phone to call 911. And he saw her pick up the phone and he started shooting. He shot Carol in the knee and Cheryl the stomach. The bullet aimed at Layla tore through her side. The bullet hit one of my vertebrae, so I just fell to the ground and I couldn't move my legs. And I didn't know why. Layla remembers what happened next, but her memories are scattered and at times a little jarring when paired with the chaos unfolding around her. Sometimes she laughs when she tells her story, sometimes at moments that aren't really funny. She knows this. She does it, she explains, in part because she knows what happened to her makes other people uncomfortable. Jokes help ease their discomfort. But it's also a defense mechanism that helps her as well a way to distance herself from overwhelming emotions. This incongruity is particularly jarring when she tells the story of her shooting. I knew I had been shot. It felt like a baseball bat hitting me in the gut, and I fell down. I was like, oh, that's just like what happens in the movies. And so I, I dragged myself back against a bookshelf because I wanted to see what was happening. Hawk, still screaming about Iraq and Jews, walked past the room, heading toward other offices. It's weird the things that your mind focuses on in those moments. It's, it's strange things. 
things. One of the weird things that went through my mind after I was shot is what's gonna happen to my supply closet if I'm not here to take care of it because I was kind of the, the babysitter for the supply closet, making sure it stayed organized and clean every day. Her thought was interrupted. Huck reached the next office. You know, I saw one of my other coworkers run past the office screaming and him following her with the gun pointed at her. I heard shooting and screaming. And all those TV shows that, you know, where someone gets shot and they just fall to the ground and they can't move. That's not really true. There were people who were shot horribly, who one woman was shot in, through her femoral artery and she made it all the way out of the building before she passed out. Um, other woman was shot in the abdomen and she made it out. It, you know, it, it's not like it is in TV shows. It's amazing how much you can move and do in those situations with adrenaline and everything. Layla was the only one, in fact, who couldn't run. As she lay helpless on the floor, she recalls thoughts that veered from completely logical to somewhat ludicrous in hindsight. At one moment, she started counting the bullets as they were being fired. She had no idea about guns or how many bullets the shooter had, but she began to count as though the tally would tell her when he had run out so she could jump on him and stop the rampage. Never mind that she couldn't use her legs thinking about how I'm going to tackle this guy even though I couldn't move my legs but that was like you know that was what I wanted to do is like I don't know I just wanted to stop him hurting people she noticed she was bleeding and figured she should deal with that and there was a onesie that someone had got for one of the women who was pregnant in the building and I'm like man I don't want to ruin this onesie but I think she'll understand in the circumstance because I've been shot and you know I held it over my wound and I kept thinking man it's going to be weird having to tell people I've been shot how am I going to do that how am I going to tell people I've been shot Hawk came back around one of Layla's co-workers Pamela Wechter a 58 year old mother of two described as a leader in the Jewish community ran into a stairwell as she tried to flee the building Hawk chased her down and fired. My manager, Cheryl, at some point said, you know, we need to get out of here. Can you, can you get up? And I, I couldn't. Since I couldn't move, she told me to play dead. Cheryl ran out of the room, wanting to find the niece she knew was coming to visit. She didn't yet know that Kelsey was not only barricaded in the bathroom, but had been used as a hostage for the gunman to force his way inside. After Cheryl left the room, Hawk came back and looked Layla in the eye and leveled a gun at her the second time. They shared that look, that moment of intimacy, as Layla called it. She can still picture his eyes as they locked with hers. Should she have said something? Would it have mattered? Those questions still haunt her, so she finds a way to laugh as she tells the story. And it, the bullet hit me in the shoulder. And I thought, you know, maybe I should play dead now. So <laughs> I did. I kind of flopped over. Um, and I, I guess I'm glad he wasn't a good shot because I don't think he was aiming for my shoulder. Hack had been screaming at the women not to call 911. But a pregnant woman named Dana Klein dialed it anyway. She had been shot through the arm already and was desperate to keep her baby alive. Hawk heard her on the phone, called her stupid, berated her for not following his orders, and threatened her with his gun. She passed him the receiver, and he spoke with a dispatcher who somehow managed to convince him to give himself up. Um, and eventually the paramedics came in and got me, 
and they cut my favorite pair of pants off of me, which was very distressing. And they realized I had a back injury and got me out of the building. I got into the ambulance and they gave me an IV and I made a joke with the ambulance driver about how, you know, I'd just been shot twice and it still hurts to get an IV. And <laughs> they, they thought that was really funny. And apparently they later came to tell my parents that story because they, you know, I was cracking jokes with them while I'm bleeding and injured horribly. And yeah, yeah, your mind works in weird ways uh, in those kinds of situations. Layla and her surviving co-workers were taken to the hospital. The rampage lasted 16 minutes. The team here at Aftermath is grateful to have Simply Safe as a sponsor of the show. In 2017, the Better Business Bureau heard more than 5,000 complaints about alarm companies. That puts home security in the top 10% of most complained about industries. Simply Safe, the home security company I use and trust, knows how to avoid all those complaints. Here's how they've done it. They got rid of contracts and hidden fees. They work hard to earn their customers' business instead of relying on tricks and fine print. Simply put, Simply Safe is a company that treats you right. How rare is that today? A company that relies on good service and a great product to earn your business. It's why they've got an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau for 10 years running. And there are over 40,000 five-star reviews online. Simply Safe is what home security should be. You're getting the best protection, period. I can't tell you how easy it was to get mine set up, and the peace of mind I have now is priceless. Learn more about Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/aftermath. That's simplysafe.com/aftermath to protect your home and family with an A+ home security system. simplysafe.com/aftermath. The what-if thoughts began immediately for Layla, and they've never really stopped. She's quick to say that she understands it was completely natural that she froze at the sight of a gun in her face. But I think about the huge fire hydrant I had behind my chair at the desk, and I'm like, what if I'd been able to pull that out and whack him in the head? You know, maybe I could have kept us all from getting shot. You know, would it have been worth it to try to you know, I wish that I had been able to talk to him and have a dialogue with him. I just froze, though. I, I couldn't. Layla's memories from the hospital are vague and blurry, but she recalls her parents telling her that her co-worker Pam had died and that other co-workers were badly injured. She remembers her wrists being tied to the hospital bed, a precaution to keep her from ripping up the tubes that were keeping her alive. I could look down at my body and I had lost a lot of weight, both from, you know, not moving, you lose muscle mass, but also because of the use of a hollow point bullet, it hit almost every internal organ. Thankfully, my intestines were not hit, but pretty much everything else. The artery that leads to my left kidney was damaged, uh, my pancreas, spleen, stomach, liver, and my vertebrae. That artery damage means that her left kidney is... It's pretty much shriveled up. I guess it just stays in your body, and as long as there's no infection, they just leave it there. There's no reason to remove it. The pancreas damage was a bigger problem. Doctors removed a chunk of it. Then Tube fed her a special diet with very little fat, so that her pancreas was basically allowed to rest and heal. 
it was some really gross experiences of them like sucking the food out of my stomach after a while to see how much food had been digested just to measure it. That's a really strange sensation. The spinal injury had the longest lasting effects. When Layla talks about it, she slips in and out of medical jargon with ease. At that point of the vertebrae, there's something called uh, the cauda equina, which are these nerves that kind of come out of your vertebrae and go down your She had had a small introduction into medicine when she helped her mom study for nursing school as a kid. But that's not why Layla has made a point to learn so much about her injuries. Something happened that was outside of my control, and it changed my body and my life forever. And so by gathering this knowledge, I guess it gives me a little bit more of a sense of, of power, I guess. Like, I, I, you know, I can, I can, I know exactly what's happening here, so that makes it okay or not as bad as just be feeling super vulnerable and not knowing the words and not knowing what's happening. It helps her to talk calmly about her injuries, of which there's no shortage. And there's always new pains and new problems and new doctor's appointments and because it's something concrete she can grasp. It's harder for her to explain what's happened to her psychologically. After the shooting, she knew her attention should be on her recovery, so she did what to others surely seemed rash. She broke up with her boyfriend. It had been heading that way anyway, she says, but doing it from her hospital bed was extra awkward. Her parents stepped up to take care of her, but she was mindful that they were also traumatized by what had happened to her. In any situation like this, the repercussions are that there's a person who's injured and then everyone around them also suffers in different ways. At 23, Layla had never seen her parents so rattled. I think particularly for my dad, it made him feel really vulnerable that, you know, I'm an only child, and almost losing me was really difficult for them. You know, I remember <laughs> when they were trying to get me to breathe on my own again in the hospital, my dad would yell at me to breathe. <laughs> and so they'd, they'd take out this tube, he's like, breathe, breathe. And eventually they had to have him leave the room because it was stressing me out a little bit because he didn't want me to have to go into a like crisis situation where I couldn't breathe and they had to reintubate me and, you know, it, it's, dangerous. Once Layla was discharged from the hospital, her father stayed with her in Seattle to help her recover. She could see how tough it was for him and how hard he was fighting for her in the limited ways he could. I think it's difficult to deal with that kind of vulnerability that's really raw. And even, you know, when he was taking care of me and trying to get weight back on me, he was putting like butter and whole fat milk and making me drink insures. And I was just like sick of all of the eating, but he just wanted me to be better so much. You know, (laughs) he's kind of force feeding me. (laughs) After six weeks or so, her dad left and Layla set her sights on getting strong enough to go back to work. She figured six months was a reasonable goal. She hired someone to help out with grocery shopping and heavy lifting as she recovered alone in Seattle. But she largely was taking care of herself and pretty proud of that fact. She was in a lot of physical pain, and her doctors told her it would be a good year or even two before she would know just how damaged her nerves were. The bullet to her abdomen leached lead into her spinal cord fluid, but not enough to paralyze her. She wears the brace on her right leg, the muscles of which are significantly weaker and more atrophied than her left. The brace keeps her foot from dropping. 
and it also provides me with a little bit of weight here in the front of my knee so if my knee starts to give out because you can kind of tell the difference between my oh, muscles yeah. between my legs and so this leg will just sometimes just give out and uh, it, it provides just a little bit of, of force on my shin to like give me that feedback like hey you need to watch yourself you're about to fall and to help me snap my knee back. She faced challenges but she was optimistic. Not only had a victim's fund been set up to help her and her co-workers but she had received an outpouring of support nationwide. Mass shootings were less frequent then, and this one, targeted for religious reasons, had resonated. Layla got cards and letters from long-ago acquaintances and even complete strangers. She reconnected with old college friends and instructors. She felt like everyone had her back. When she finally felt strong enough to go back to the Jewish Federation, the building had been totally remodeled. The floor plan was open now, so people could see what was happening around them. Bulletproof glass had been installed in the entry. A new security system with buttons and secret lights had been installed, so everyone could be stealthily alerted to a problem in the building. She wasn't nervous going back, in fact. I was excited to get to see everyone. You know, a lot of those people were like my friends. A lot of them shared the experience with me to some degree. A lot of us victims had like a little powwow together in the office, and it was a very supportive environment. She got to work doing the types of receptionist jobs she did before, writing birthday cards to major donors and stocking supplies. But something nagged at her. It was really tricky because I went back and I was like, hey, have you guys done any, like, drills with all this new, like, safety equipment? Have you practiced what would happen if someone came in with a bomb or if someone was being held hostage? Nothing. And I mean, I understand that something like that could be re-traumatizing, especially so soon after. But, I mean, if you have all this equipment and all this fancy safety stuff, you should probably practice it. And I found the more and more I went in, the more anxious I was getting. I was getting kind of panicky. I wasn't able to focus on my work. And I mean, I was just like addressing birthday cards. So it wasn't like it was like really difficult. But between the pain of sitting and the feeling of not being safe there, I eventually was like, "Mm -mm, can't do this anymore. Going back to work didn't pan out as she had hoped. Okay, she figured, new plan. She would get her master's degree in public administration. That would take about two years, which should be enough time, based on what doctors had told her, for the nerve damage to calm. She threw herself into coursework at Seattle University, and once she graduated, decided it was time to apply for jobs again. But the pain meant that she couldn't sit still at a desk for eight hours, and she had a pretty anemic resume with a multi-year gap on it to boot. She would try part-time jobs, she figured. But those didn't work out well either, like when she tried to work as a personal assistant for one guy whose office was near a facility for special needs people. There were a couple times where someone would pound on the wall or just start screaming, and my mind would just shut down, and I would hide under the desk, and like five or ten minutes later, I would slowly come back to consciousness and realize, okay, all right, I'm safe. I can get out from under the desk, and I just go back to work. It was just too much. It was too much to deal with that and the pain, and just I wasn't doing a very good job at a lot of my work, sitting there on a computer and listening to these noises, and my mind would just get into kind of a distracted place, and it's 
very hard to focus when you're uncomfortable. This is the hardest part for her to explain to someone unfamiliar with trauma. It's easy, she says, for people to think, well, just buck up, get some therapy, get over it, get a job. But it isn't that easy. What happens inside her brain when she gets anxious isn't something she can just will herself past. The oldest part of our brains is responsible for primitive survival instincts, that whole fight, flight, or freeze thing. Layla has learned a lot about the so-called lizard brain since her shooting. In fact, the whole medical community has learned a lot about it in the past 12 years as researchers have studied post-traumatic stress disorder. They've learned that trauma rewires the brain. When that lizard brain takes over, all non-essential body and mind functions shut down. The brain can't tell the difference between past and present experiences, and it's thrust into reactive mode. So with that in mind, we have to go back to how Layla sees her actions in 2006, because it's connected to how she handles things today. I still wish I'd been able to stop him. I was probably, of everybody, the one who had the most opportunity to stop him. I was the only one who had an interaction with him before he started shooting. And, you know, I wish at the very least I'd talked to him. You know, maybe it would have calmed him or something. And I don't, I don't know if I'll ever completely be able to forgive myself. And I think that's a really, it's a consequence of something like this that you just have to live with. I sometimes I hear about like soldiers and survivor's guilt and the challenges that a lot of people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan have with dealing with, you know, like I was in this unit and I didn't notice the IED and maybe if I had noticed and kind of that sense of responsibility that they have. And I can really relate to that. And I think you always have questions like what if, just that what if. Even if you understand you did what you could have done as a human, you know, you, you weren't trained. Even knowing those things, I, I still don't know if I'll ever stop asking myself, what if I'd done this differently? I mean, I've even had nightmares where I'm playing like a video game and it's like a shooting situation. And I just repeat it over and over again, trying to come up with the right combination of actions to stop the shooting. Do you ever win? No, <laughs> it never works out. And that's the thing about guns, you know, when someone else is armed and you're not, you're very vulnerable and there's not a whole lot you can do. I mean, a large group of people can definitely overcome a single person with a gun, but when someone has a gun in your face, there's just not a lot you can do, <laughs> really. Here's a life lesson you can count on. You won't get better at anything if you aren't honest with yourself about what you're doing wrong. The truth is, one thing most of us are getting wrong is our toothbrushing routine. Most of us are brushing our teeth incorrectly, not brushing for long enough, and forgetting to change our brush on time. That's why you need to do what I did and get Quip. Quip, that's spelled Q-U-I-P, is the sleek new electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to clean your teeth. I got mine in the copper metal color. It's really cute, and it has saved me from myself by keeping me from getting lax on my toothbrushing habits. That's because Quip's subscription plan refreshes my brush on a dentist-recommended schedule, delivering new brush heads every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com aftermath right now, 
you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash aftermath, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash aftermath. Layla's friends helped her keep her head on straight. Tim Morgan, who met Layla about a year before the shooting, said their friendship grew far more layered afterward. The two talk a lot about mortality and anxiety, but they laugh a lot, too. It was through Morgan's old store that Layla met Nick Coelho. Hello. Hi, Nick. This is Amber. Hey. Nick, like Layla, was a gaming geek, and he had moved to Seattle from Little Rock, Arkansas. Layla caught his eye. She was nice, cute, and she gave me candy, so, you know, (laughs) I'm a pretty easy guy. (laughs) It's a strange thing to learn the girl you're falling in love with was a few years earlier, gunned down and nearly killed. How Nick learned about it doesn't surprise me at all. Some of her friends knew about it because they were longtime friends of hers. So, you know, eventually silly jokes and things like that would come up. And so she just explained it, I think, at one point. Why am I not surprised that it probably came up as a joke? She jokes a lot. (laughs) She does. When you ask Nick directly how much the shooting affects his own life, he says not very much. He loves Layla and all of her quirks. But as he talks about his and Layla's relationship, it's clear that, really, he has to navigate the effects of what that gunman did almost as much as Layla does. They can't go on long hikes. When they travel, they have to account for Layla's wheelchair and leg pain. Even Nick's plan to propose was altered because Layla was feeling anxious. I had some grand plans, and usually they go awry. I'm I'm a pretty impatient person or impetuous person, so... She was coming to visit my hometown, to Little Rock, and she has a propensity to get really anxious going on outings, going to new places. It can be kind of stressful for her. You know, sometimes anxiety can kind of take over. And so instead of some grand thing at a fancy restaurant, all I remember is I was eating mac and cheese at the time and I was on my bed. And just, by the way, would you like to get married? I just felt like I wanted to cheer her up, and it worked. <laughs> and and she said yes, so it worked out. Did she say, are you serious? This it was a- the mac and cheese that did it. That's what she said. I put it over the top. Tim, the business co-owner, officiated that wedding. I jokingly asked if they all wore Star Wars costumes, and Nick laughed. Of course not. Then he remembered... It was Tim's Harvest Festival, so he might have been dressed up in peasant garb because he has a little he had a little wheat field in his backyard. He's obsessed with medieval stuff. I just made a joke where you guys in costume and the actual answer is yes, somebody was. Somebody was, yeah, of course. So Layla's found her gaming partner. In a lot of ways, life has moved on like you'd expect. She loves Seattle and her dog. Nick acknowledges that the shooting does hang over them, but he says yeah, in, in my mind, everybody has quirks. Everyone has something to work around. And so it's just another thing to work around. It's just been an ongoing um, hmm. an ongoing adventure. How about that? After the shooting in Seattle, a bit of a divide formed among the survivors. Some blamed Layla in subtle ways. They blamed her young age, her lack of training, the way that she froze. That hurt, Layla said. And so she isn't in contact with all of them anymore. 
Eventually, she took some solace in the words of a woman she met who had trained as a firefighter. And she told me, you know, even people who go through the training to be a firefighter, they go through hundreds of hours of training and practice and learn everything that you're supposed to do. When they get in that situation where they have to run into the fire, sometimes they just can't do it. They can't overcome that lizard brain that we all have that it just reacts to that danger in a very strong way. And some people just freeze. And for someone without training to expect to not freeze is, you'd have to be a pretty exemplary or lucky person not to have that be what happened. And I, I don't know, for some reason that sunk in a little bit more because I felt like she had like a personal experience and hearing that even people who'd gone through all of this training sometimes still freeze. It makes me feel a little bit more like, okay, well, you know, I, I'm not just like some, you know, person who's like a deer in the headlights. It's just a natural human reaction. So that's the battle that rages in her basically daily. Guilt for not doing more and acceptance that her response was natural. She struggles, too, with whether she should reach out to Hack, the man who shot her. After the shooting, he was charged with murder, assault, and hate crimes. He was convicted in 2010 and sentenced to life in prison. His lawyers argued that he was mentally ill, suffering from either schizoaffective or bipolar disorder, and that he thought God was aiming his handgun. They said he believed that if he held the Jewish workers hostage, he would end up on CNN and would give a public message that would end the wars in Iraq and Lebanon. Prosecutors agreed he was unstable and angry and suicidal, but not insane. Jurors agreed. Hawk apologized at his sentencing. So did his heartbroken parents as they hugged some of the survivors. Layla has thought about writing him a letter, but she doesn't know what she would say or whether it would matter. There's another battle that plays on in Layla's life. This one centers around work. She wants to work. She kept trying different types of jobs, but each presented a challenge she had trouble overcoming. Desk jobs are too painful. She can neither sit nor stand for very long at a time. I get shooting pains, so basically every 30 seconds to a minute, it's like a jolt of electricity goes through my leg. It consumes my attention. It's very painful. She has to lie down a lot, and to alleviate the pain in her leg and back, she contorts herself into weird pretzel shapes on her couch. She thought about being a dog groomer for a while, but she can't lift more than a small dog without risking falling. Aside from the physical, there's the psychological, which is even harder to overcome. Conflict causes her to shut down. Facebook is a fraught place because she sees people fighting about politics and the tone is so hostile. I mean, it's scary to me, honestly. It, it really is scary from both sides politically sometimes. I, I feel nervous when people say some things and I'm like, wow, that's really awful because, I mean, I'm the victim of a group of people being dehumanized by someone. And so any kind of dehumanization, even if it's someone I totally think is a jackass and, you know, deserves criticism for their decisions and disagree with politically, there is still a human who's a child, a brother, a father. You can't separate those two because that's a slippery slope to legitimizing killing or any number of things. At the moment, she's trying to navigate the world without work. 
When she's able, she helps clear off tables and tackle other behind-the-scenes jobs at the game shop her husband co-runs. It's not what she envisioned for her life, but it's what makes sense for her in the aftermath. I want to work. That was what, you know, both of my parents have very strong work ethics, and I had a very strong work ethic, and it's something that gives a lot of meaning to people, and I, I think it's good for people to work. And so trying to figure out what is life without work? What is it like to retire at 23? Because that's basically what I am, is I'm retired. Her options at one point seemed limitless, but those two bullets changed the trajectory of her life. Even 12 years later, she's still not sure what her new path should be. Next time on Aftermath. This is just a massive crime scene stretching about six blocks. This was definitely one of the most violent things that ever happened in Washington, D.C. They were like Bitsy and Bopsy, Hethel and Jekyll, Lucy and Ethel. I mean, you saw one, you saw the other. I do feel pressure. It's like that feeling of having something lost is like, if I don't do nothing with my life, then it's like two lives lost. Either way, even if she was here and this incident didn't happen, I know I I still have to do something with my life. Aftermath is the result of a partnership between the Cincinnati Enquirer, part of the USA Today Network, and The Trace. It's reported by Amber Hunt and Elizabeth Van Brocklin, edited by Amy Wilson, and produced by Phil Didion and Amanda Rossman. Music is by Andrew Higley. Intern Brianna Rice assisted... Some episodes include additional sound courtesy of awesome local journalists. For full clip credits, go to our website. The podcast was supported in part by a fellowship from the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia Journalism School. For videos, photos, and more, go to aftermathpod.com. You can follow us on Twitter at AftermathPod or find us on Facebook.